The scripture reading for today is Daniel 6, 1 through 28. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes this petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document an injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, should be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction which you've signed, but makes petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, delivered you? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, 
I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is God's word. In, 19, in 1963, the Beach Boys came out with a song, In My Room. And for reasons that will become apparent, I think it would be great for us to remember the lyrics of that song. So anyway, if you're from that era, here you go. There's a world where I can go and tell my secrets to in my room in my room in this world I lock out all my worries and my fears in my The Beach Boys have a suggestion when you're afraid. Go to your room. Fear is a powerful motivator for human behavior. Uh, I was looking up list phobias in the, on, online, and I encountered some that I thought were interesting. Octophobia is the fear of eight. Uh, cyberphobia is fear of computers. And for the flip side, papyrophobia is fear of paper. Fear triggered, the stronger fear can dominate someone's action. I can, you know, for example, I can have fear of this and fear of this, but if I fear this more, that's going to control my action. Now, not all fears are alike. Some fears are more reasonable than others. For example, fear of the number eight and fear of venomous snakes, in my opinion, are not equal in importance. In today's passage, in which Daniel is invited to a Lions Club dinner, it could justify reasonable fear, particularly when you're the main course. And it's logical, it's logical that this is going to turn out badly. So 
to fear that makes sense. But Daniel is dealing with competing fears. Uh, for Daniel, the, the question is, does the fear of dinner at the Lions Club trump my fear of God? The question of what trumps our fear of God is not just a question for Daniel, but one for all men. In fact, Jesus actually alerted his friends to the importance of wrestling with this supreme fear issue. In Luke 12, 4 and 5, he says, But I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, I'm going to switch to this, guys, okay? Do you want to do that? Uh, but and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, this was Jesus talking. And basically what he's saying is fear God and fear nothing else. Daniel actually shows us what it looks like when someone fears God more than anything else. So I'm delighted that this morning we get to zoom in for a close-up about how to fear well. Now Daniel's opponents think that this is a farewell story. Bye-bye, Daniel. It is not. It is a fearwell story, as we're going to see. Now those who laid the trap for Daniel are reasonably confident that he will play into their scheme and be eliminated. The outcome, however, is not what they expected. In their case, they seem oblivious to the peril to which they are actually exposing themselves by what they're doing. So first, let's get some background on Daniel 6. First thing I need to clarify is that sometimes the Hebrew conjunction or Aramaic conjunction that is translated and can also be translated and is or also or even. And that's the case here in the very last verse of the chapter. Darius the Mede is also Cyrus the Persian. Now, not to be confused with Darius the Persian, who appears later in Medo-Persian history. So I'm just clearing something up that some of you are history people will know about. But here's Daniel 6.28. It says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, that is, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's the same person. Darius, or Cyrus, is a new king, and he's consolidating and organizing his empire. Now, Medo-Persia was a vast empire. It stretches in a great arc from Egypt all the way to the Indus River. It's not quite there yet in this year, but that's where it will go. And so Darius established an administrative layer of 100 satrapies, or regions, to be overseen by three commissioners. And Daniel was one of these three, but he was actually coming up for a promotion. Now, Daniel negotiated a very similar challenge to what's found in this chapter in chapter 1, which, by the way, was almost 70 years earlier. But the difference is that here in chapter 6, the challenge to compromise is one that's contrived by those who seek his harm. Now, we wouldn't expect Daniel to deviate from a pattern of devotion to God that he's evidenced in Babylon for 70 years. 
And his opposition is actually counting on it. He's going to stay devoted to God. So let's work through the passage. And I suspect you're going to see some things that hopefully you've not seen before that to me are profound and powerful. So the plot is hatched. That's verses 1 through 5. In verse 2 it says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps that, quote, the king might not suffer loss. In the absence of effective and ethical oversight, this vast empire could suffer material erosion through uprisings and grafts. So he appoints these 120 over each of these satrapies and then has three commissioners to oversee them. Verse 3 says that Daniel began distinguishing himself. He's surpassing his peers. King Darius is impressed. In verse 3, we read that Daniel possessed an extraordinary spirit, which is similar language to what's found in Exodus 35, where we meet a man by the name of Bezalel. Bezalel was the artisan who created the tabernacle and many of the components of that first meeting place with God. And Daniel has a similar exquisite ability. God has gifted him uniquely. In verse 4, we read that his peers, which would be the other two of the three, and his downline, the 120, quote, began trying to find a ground of accusation. They're looking for dirt on Daniel. Unfortunately for them, Daniel was squeaky clean. His background check was stunning. Daniel was a man of impeccable integrity. So they came up with a plan that does not depend on finding a moral lapse, but that uses Daniel's devotion to God to question his devotion to Darius. They can't find anything wrong with him, so they're going to take something that's right with him and work a plan by which that is presented as a threat to Darius. The setup, verses 6 through 9. Verse 7 says they consulted together. And actually the language, if you look at the terms, should be a lot stronger. It isn't that they just consulted. It involves or it implies conspiracy and collusion. They were plotting. And then it says that they secured broad-based support. They, they tried to get all of the 120 on board with them. So they're working a plan. And their plan was, verse 7, let's pass a 30-day allegiance test where everybody has to demonstrate to you, new king, that they are on board with you. And there is appeal in what they're proposing to the new king. He's working to establish a kingdom, consolidate his power, establish things, and you could see how there would be some attraction. Yes, let's get everybody to where they recognize me and my authority. What are they prohibiting? Verse 7 says, prohibit, make a petition. What they're saying is we want to make it illegal to ask God for anything that's that's what they're banning we want to make it illegal to make an appeal to God and say God would you please do this 
Basically, Darius is saying, don't ask God for anything, only ask me. Now, there's nothing to suggest that Darius suspected that the conspirators have an end game here, at least at this point. There's nothing in the text that suggests as much. But after signing it, he is going to have a horrible moment in which he realizes, I have been played. For Darius... To break his own law is to destroy his credibility as king. The the kingdom would crumble. When you're a Medo-Persian king, once you sign something into law, the law cannot be broken. And there's a real irony here. The conspirators think they've manipulated the king to their advantage. We are working a plan here. This is going great. He signed it. They don't realize that the plan that they've worked is going to lead to their demise. It's going to become apparent, but they don't really know their king, nor do they see what's coming in this scheme that they've hatched. Well, then the sting, verses 10 through 13. Daniel is not operating out of ignorance. He's not going to pull an oops here. He's not saying, oh, the king said I can't do that. Ah, no, he knows. He knows exactly what has been passed and what it requires. Now, he could very easily have taken the position, you know, I think I'm going to go undercover with my prayer. Or I think I could take maybe a 30-day hiatus, you know, kind of a fast from prayer. I wouldn't be so bad. His core conviction is God matters more than life itself. God matters more. Communion with God matters more than life itself. Now you might be inclined to say that is, you know, that is so crazy that Daniel had to face something like that. Let me tell you something. This is not theoretical. This is not just Daniel. Part of my reason for choosing this book is because I am personally convinced that it is coming, that we are going to face something similar. And I'm not just saying that. Let me just read the scripture to you. This is Revelation 12, verse 11, which says, And they overcame him, referring to Satan. This is people living here on planet Earth in the future. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Daniel illustrates what drives overcomers. My testimony trumps life. And we are moving into a season. I I don't know exactly how this is going to play out. But we are moving toward a time in which those who value their life more than their testimony are going to blow it big time. Which is why I'm desperate for us to learn how testimony trumps life. I want us to learn from Daniel to be a people who value their communion with God more than life itself. So what can we learn from Daniel? Well, he continued praying, 
and giving thanks before his God despite it now being a capital offense. Can you imagine that in our culture? And again, I realize in my mind we are moving. There may be some ups and downs, but we are moving toward a season in which it will become a capital offense. You will die. I will die for naming the name of Jesus. Well, in verse 10, Daniel is on his knees three times a day. Well, that's kind of an interesting pattern. Where did he get that idea? From Psalm 55, 16 and 17. Daniel is actually using a prayer practice that he learned from Scripture. In this passage, Psalm 55, 16 and 17, he says, As for me... I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur and he will hear my voice. Daniel says, oh, I like the David plan. Morning, noon, night, I'm going to pray. And so that's what Daniel was doing. And it says in verse 10, as he had been doing previously. In other words, he was using the David plan three days a week, three times a day. And had been. That was his pattern. Maybe that's a pattern that went back 70 years. And there was no change. No change in his practice. Then it says that he was praying, facing Jerusalem and a window. And what's that all about? Oh, this one to me gets even more fascinating. Daniel is using an approach to prayer that Solomon says is ideally suited to the exact situation that Daniel finds himself in. Wait, 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 wait. Solomon, who lived 400 years before Daniel and dedicated the temple, is actually telling a Daniel how to pray? <laughs> yep. Solomon predicts a certain circumstance. And in that circumstance, he says, and this is how you should pray. Here's the passage. This is 1 Kings 8, 46 and 49. There's a parallel passage in Chronicles, but it says the same thing. And this is Solomon describing what happens pertinent to the temple. This is on the day of the dedication of the temple. And so this is Solomon praying. Now that prayer was recorded in the book of Kings, and clearly Daniel had access to it. I'm going to show you some reasons why I say that, but let's start here. When they, Israel, this is Solomon talking, sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. And you're angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity, and have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray toward, to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. What? 
400 years earlier, Solomon says in his prayer of dedication for the temple, he says, when your people disobey you and they are taken to a foreign land, would you bring them to a place where they realize what they have done and start praying toward Jerusalem? When you face that cross, you're facing that direction. And that's what Daniel was doing. Exactly what he's doing. He's praying, facing Jerusalem and the temple as a way of saying, I am looking to the God who has identified with Israel as the God of my help. Now I'm going to show you something that, and I just discovered this this week. I'm so taken aback by it. It takes my breath away. Solomon said, here's what you need to pray, Daniel. Here's what I want you to pray. We have sinned and have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. That's the prayer request. You know, that, that's what you need to confess to the Lord when you're taken away. So here I've got to give you a little background so that you can understand what's happening here. Daniel chapters 1 through 6 is a chronology of a sequence of events. It starts in year 1 of Daniel's appearance in Babylon and concludes, we, uh, in terms of the narrative section, where we are now about 70 years later. So that's chapters 1 through 6, provide this kind of sequence of events. Then chapters 7 through 12, the other half of the book, are like reading highlights from Daniel's prayer journal. And when you go back and read those highlights, he gives you a timestamp. So, for example, you can start, as we will uh, in a few weeks, in chapter 7. You'll read the timestamp, and then you'll read what he prayed and what happened, etc. Well, interestingly, in chapters 7 through 12, there is a prayer with a timestamp that is for this exact time. In, in this entry... It tells us what Daniel was praying about in this exact time frame, which is year one of Darius's reign. So let me read you a section from Daniel's prayer journal. This is Daniel 9, verse 1, and verses 3 through 5. Listen to what it says. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, that's this year, the year of the Lions Club dinner, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord God, listen to this, we have sinned, committed iniquity, and acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Did you hear what I just said? We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly. I checked the terms in Hebrew. It's the exact same language that Solomon used 400 years before. In other words, right at this time, when he's being thrown into the lion's den, and I can't say precisely that it was on this day or whatever, but at this season, in the first year of Darius, Daniel is praying for exactly what Solomon said he should pray for, and he's saying, we have sinned. We have blown it. We have acted wickedly. He's directing his prayer toward the God of Jerusalem, the God who has chosen to make himself known in that place. This prayer, by the way, that he's praying during this time 
was actually answered by the dispatch of Gabriel. And when we get to chapter 9, if we do, then you'll hear about how Gabriel actually answered this prayer. And he said, hey, Daniel, you've been praying this. I'm here to help you out. And that will happen in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 and following. Now, Daniel doesn't pray to be seen. You know, Matthew 6, 5, Jesus said, don't pray to be seen. But he's not afraid of being seen praying. He's okay with that. Even though it is a capital offense to make petition of God. Even though he is, among other things, praying the prayer of Solomon for the dedication of the temple that exiles need to pray. Obedience to God does not necessarily oppose loyalty to a king. But when, as in this case, a divergence is created, we choose God and not the king. The conspirators all come together for a coordinated sting and they come before Darius and I can imagine them saying something like this. Now, uh, Darius, remind me here. Uh, I seem to recall you passing a loyalty law, right? Yeah, 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 okay. Well, we found a blatant violator. In fact, he's an outsider, an exile. And the king is trapped by the manipulators. To save Daniel is to destroy his credibility as a king. He has no interest in sending Daniel to the lion's den. He exhausts every legal means to be able to save him. But the conspirators' plan is well thought out and artfully executed. And Darius is between a rock and a hard place. A long night, verses 16 through 18. The king demonstrates incredible faith I mean, he actually says this, God himself will deliver you. Makes me wonder about the extent to which Daniel had already been investing in Darius. I mean, where's he going to learn about Daniel's God, if not from Daniel? Now, the way this was structured, we're speculating here, I'm speculating, but the lions then would be like a large pit, where the lions would be roaming and there's a large circle above. You could throw someone in there, but it also has an access way where you would put someone in a certain place, then you would lift the doors that expose them to the lions, and that passageway could be sealed with a stone. So the stone would be put in place and then a signet ring would be used to impress upon it, which, by the way, similar to the tomb of Jesus makes a miracle irrefutable. Daniel was not doing fine because he quick ran out and hid somewhere. And then when the king showed up, somehow he you know, got back in place. He was stuck there for the night. Darius spends the night fasting. He recognizes the situation is totally beyond his ability. And in the morning, the king asks... Has your God been able? Over 60 years earlier, Daniel's three friends once said something. 
Listen to what they say, and this is chapter 3, verse 17. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And when Daniel speaks up, the resounding answer is, God is able again. Now, what's interesting to me is that in this case, God dispatched an angelic lion tamer. It says that an angel was sent. And this angel apparently was perfectly capable of saying, lions, shut up. And he meant, shut up your mouths. They did it. Daniel was not saved from the lion's den, but saved through the lion's den. Remember how we talked about that with the fiery furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved through the fire. Daniel was saved from the fire. Here, Daniel goes into the lion's den, and yet he is saved in the middle of this amazing situation. The conspirators become living proof of Proverbs 26, 27. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. Daniel was thrown into the pit or walked into it, and the stone sealed it, but he did not receive what they thought. It says that they were malicious, and the word there is actually eating the pieces, which is interesting. You know, they thought the lions would eat the pieces of Daniel. They were trying to eat the pieces of Daniel. But sometimes, as is the case here, they not only met their own demise, but their families felt the consequences of their very wrong choices. Well, the end product is that there are headlines. Darius issues a proclamation that doesn't have an expiration date. You know, the first proclamation says, we're going to have a 30-day period here. You can't petition any god except me. No prayer requests. Just talk to me. This one doesn't have an expiration date. All right, for the next 30 days, I want you to reverence the God of Daniel. There's no expiration. And the report goes empire-wide. And basically what he's saying is, I want you to fear and reverence the God who is the living God. He's not a dead God. He's a living God. Darius is going further than Nebuchadnezzar in his descriptions. And then it says, by the way, Daniel finishes, finished well and, quote, enjoyed success in his latter years. So I got to ask, Daniel, how did you do this? How is it possible to love the Lord more than life itself? And I'm not just casually interested. I want to understand that because we are moving to a place where everyone in this room needs to understand this. Well, I've identified five things that I think are clues that help us understand how Daniel did this. The first one is word-driven words. Daniel's prayers are shaped by what God's word says. His time of praying comes from Psalms. His prayer requests come from Solomon. There's references to things from Moses, and there's things from Proverbs. He prays three times a day, facing Jerusalem as his ongoing habit, praying in the light of what God's word specifically says from the time of Solomon. That's something that informed the heart of a guy 
who can love God more than life itself. So, here's my takeaway. Start finding ways, if you're not already, to inform your prayer and your petition by what Scripture says. Whatever you're praying for, whatever's on your heart right now, find what the Scripture says that relates to that and then start using that to frame how you pray. That's what Daniel did. Number two was fear one and none. Fear God alone. This man's schedule provided, you know, seemingly, every justification for relaxing his spiritual disciplines. But if he did that, he's sending a clear message that personal safety trumps daily communion with God. So, is there something when I get up in the morning that's more important, you know, check my email or whatever, more important than communion with God? Then I've got a problem. Isaiah 30:15 says, "In quietness and trust is your strength. So get quiet before God. Don't let anything else in front of it. And that's where your strength comes from. Uh, third principle is persecution plus. When you are persecuted for doing the right thing, you can actually go, love it. This is so good because I'm the real thing. The verse that we've been working on, 1 Peter 4, 14, let me read to you the next two verses. Uh, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Then it says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. In other words, when I suffer for my commitment to Christ, that is a positive. That's a plus. I need to celebrate it. I must be doing something right. Fourth thing that I see in Daniel is looking beyond. He looks past the now. Daniel has obviously been talking to Darius. And any deviation from standard practice is going to undercut his witness about this God. So basically what he's doing is saying, I want to make sure that I don't deviate because I want Darius to see the real thing. And by the way, Darius gets it. He says, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. Darius got it. And then there's one last one, which is peripheral vision. This to me is probably the most important one that I can see glimpses of in Daniel, which is basically God has got my back. Daniel said this in verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me. And then he explains why. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you. O king, I have committed no crime. Basically, what he's saying is, I am going to obey God, and he will protect me. Well, that's Daniel. We don't have a promise like that. No, we do. 
Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And see this. Behold, it's a command. See this. I am with you. You go make disciples. You make testimony of Jesus Christ. And I am right there with you. It is so important. It matters profoundly that we prepare now. Then is too late. Revelation 12:11 says, "This is coming. This is future." And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Am I? Are you? So in love with the Lord that I'm fine with you killing me for it. It's not a problem. But I am not going to budge in my testimony of who he is and who he is to me. So use the Daniel protocol and get ready and take this to your heart. This is Revelation 2.10. Listen to this. This is Jesus talking. He's saying it to us in this room. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to be those who are unashamed, who are bold, who are courageous, certainly who are wise and artful, but who are unflinching in their devotion to you. Make of us a people like Daniel. Father, we can't help asking of that without recognizing the fact that that's what Jesus did for us. He loved us more than life itself. He died for us. Help us become like your son and be those who love you, who love him more than life itself and who are thereby prepared to be bold, courageous testimony givers no matter what this culture throws at us. We're pleading for you to work because we love you with everything in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.